Let's pray. Almighty God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant to us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and always to rejoice in his holy comfort. Through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. The book of Acts is extraordinary for a number of reasons, and not least of which is the number of sermons it contains. There's at least 19 of them, eight by Peter, nine by Paul, and one each by Stephen and James. And it's our privilege today to look carefully at the first sermon of the church that was ever delivered. Hopefully, when we're finished, we'll have a better understanding of not only the content of the Gospel, and how best to present it in ways that are faithful to the biblical witness and understandable to the contemporary mind. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended with the sound of a violent wind. He then appeared as tongues of fire and rested on the 120 believers. He then enabled speech from the Galileans to be heard by many, each in their native language. Is it any wonder then that they're amazed and perplexed and they ask one another, what does this mean? Well, straight away, Peter has an instant audience and they're all ears. And what he said was that Joel's prophecy has just been fulfilled in their midst. This is the last days when the Spirit has been poured out, not on everyone, but on all who call on the name of the Lord. And it doesn't matter who you are, it includes sons and daughters, men and women, young and old. If the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, then that will be found without exception on the lips of all who call upon God's name. And though the signs and wonders in the heavens might readily be delegated to the day of the Lord, when Christ shall return in glory, it could just as easily be understood as upheavals of nature that started on Good Friday, or as apocalyptic imagery for times of social and political upheaval. So what they saw was what Joel prophesied. Now at this point you might expect that if Peter's got something to say about what's just happened, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't. Instead he links Pentecost and what the prophet Joel said directly to Jesus. Jesus is first and foremost his front and centre. He stands at the very heart of the apostolic message of the Gospel. And what he says about Jesus is rooted in history and it's testified to by the prophets and the apostles. And that's the thing about the Christian faith. It's verifiable. It can be tested. Have a look at what he says from verse 22. Firstly, he says that Jesus is not unknown to them. Jesus is a man whose life and ministry are clearly accredited by God. His miracles, his wonders and signs are all testimony to that. And of these things, they're all well aware what Jesus did, well, he didn't do it in secret. Secondly, Peter says in verse 23 that Jesus died according to God's purpose and foreknowledge. Nonetheless, that in no measure limits the culpability of wicked men who are put into death. And though as yet there's no developed doctrine of the atonement, there is here a clear understanding that in Jesus' death, God's saving purpose is being worked out. 
Thirdly, Peter is insistent in verse 24 that it is God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, it's impossible that death should keep a hold on him. And then perhaps surprisingly, from verse 25, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, which we read this morning, to make his point. And Peter's point is this. What David has written about death, about not being abandoned to the grave, about not seeing decay, well, he can't be talking about himself, because David's tomb was there in Jerusalem. And for the previous thousand years, he had not come out of it. So clearly David is talking about the Holy One, the Holy One who would be one of his descendants. As Peter says in verse 31, seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And Peter's final testimony about Jesus is in verse 33. There he says that Jesus has ascended and he's now exalted to the right hand of God. And the Holy Spirit, who has descended at Pentecost, is now poured out by Jesus himself. And again, Peter quotes from the psalm, this time Psalm 110, to confirm his point. It's not David who ascended to heaven, but David's Lord. And he's now seated at God's right hand until his enemies be made a footstool. So there's the content of the gospel message, and it's all about Jesus. It includes his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, and his exaltation. And Peter's summary conclusion is in verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Christ. Now, given the content of the Gospel, it's clearly not meant to be a message simply for your information. It's a message that requires a response. And the response of many who heard Peter's message was twofold. As we read in verse 37, they were firstly convicted, that they were cut to the heart. And secondly, they wanted direction for a way forward. Now, you and I know that even when the content of the gospel is faithfully presented, it's very possible that there's no sign of any conviction whatsoever. And if genuine conviction does happen, we can be absolutely sure that it's got nothing to do with our method, our style, or our skills of persuasion, and it has everything to do with the work of God's Holy Spirit. Thankfully, thankfully conviction is God's work, and not ours. Our task is simply to point to Jesus and to be clear about the implications of who he is and what he's done. If Jesus is Lord and he's died for your sins and mine and he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, then there must be a sure hope. There must be a new and a living way. There needs to be a direction forward. And that's exactly what Peter offers them. His clear direction is in verse 38. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And repentance, as we know, is a call to change our minds, to, to move in the opposite direction. It means changing our attitude, 
our attitude towards Jesus and moving not away from him but towards him. And though here there is no specific mention of belief, it's clearly understood that belief and repentance will they go together. To turn away from sin and towards Jesus is self-evidently an act of faith. Repentance without faith or vice versa, well, it makes no sense at all. And as well as repentance, Peter directs them to be baptised. Now, baptism was not unfamiliar to the Jews. It was a rite of passage for sinful Gentiles who wanted to become proselytes. But it was also the call of John the Baptist on all Jews that they should repent in preparation for the coming of the Lord and be baptised. So it was a very humbling and a very public act. For it declared to all not only one's sinfulness, but also one's allegiance to the very Lord and Christ that they had previously crucified. For baptism now, as Peter says in verse 38, is in the name of Jesus Christ. And though repentance and baptism come at great personal cost, with them also come the twofold promises of the gospel. And the promises are in verse 38. The first promise is the forgiveness of sin. And the second promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And though the reception of these promises are coexistent with baptism, they're not caused by baptism. They don't happen because you're baptised. The forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit depends entirely upon the grace of God. They're conditional not upon baptism, but upon faith and repentance, both of which themselves are gifts of God. So when we baptise a child, we are not saying that they're regenerate, for that requires repentance and faith. But what we are saying is that the promises of the new covenant community, for the new covenant community are theirs by virtue of them being sanctified and set apart as children of believers. Christian parents and the church community cannot guarantee that a child will one day be regenerate. But what we can guarantee is a home within the covenant community where faith and hope and love are nurtured and grown. The promise of the gospel is forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as Peter says in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and indeed for all whom the Lord our God will call. So in response to the content of the gospel, Peter gives direction and hope. And he also makes it very clear that the gospel calls us to a new way of living. And certainly that means living in holiness, but just as certainly it means living life in communion with God's people. As he says in verse 40 and 41, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and were added to their number. The corrupt generation was the community that refused to accept Jesus as Lord and Christ. And the number to which they were added were the 120 disciples of Christ who had believed who had been baptised with the Holy Spirit. This was the New Covenant community, the community of faith. 
And at the end of chapter 2, Luke goes on to describe what that community of faith looks like in practice. The point I'm making is this. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit, they not only transfer us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, they also transfer us into the community of God's new covenant people. The New Testament never supposes one without the other. To be a Christian without a church community is like being a Christian without repentance and faith. It makes no sense in theory and it's unworkable in practice. So what do we learn from Peter about how best to present a clear gospel and its implications? What can we say to a postmodern and indeed a post-Christian culture who listen largely with pagan ears? Well, what's immediately clear is that like Peter and all the apostles, our focus must be on Jesus Christ. Where Peter begins, we must begin also. For it's impossible to herald the gospel without proclaiming Christ. Now we'll see stories about Jesus and the stories or the parables that Jesus told. They're really important. And they're important because they teach us what it means to repent. They teach us what it means to believe and what it means to find grace in trusting God. The Gospels are full of such stories, but ultimately the Gospels are about Jesus' death and resurrection. For it's Christ's death and resurrection that are the saving events and the pinnacle of God's eternal purposes. But Christ's death and resurrection, well, they don't happen in a vacuum. They're events that happen within the context of both scripture and history. Now we need to be wise about how we use scripture in evangelising. Certainly Peter's audience were largely Jews, so their background knowledge and their understanding, well, it was already in place. But when we reference scripture, we cannot assume the same thing. And nor can we assume that it carries some authority in the minds of those who hear it. I think those days are long gone. So when we do use scripture, the point is not, it must be true because it's there, but rather, it's there because it is true. And at the very least, what the Old Testament does is that it testifies to the expectation of a Messiah who can be none other than Jesus. And what the New Testament does is that it confirms that expectation as having been fulfilled and testified to by eyewitness accounts. Peter also makes it clear that the good news of the Gospel is not only of what Jesus did, but also of what he promises as a result. He promises to those who respond to him the forgiveness of sins past and the gift of the Holy Spirit who transforms us and renews us in the image of God's Son. Now together, these two, forgiveness and transformation, well, they constitute the freedom that so many are searching for. Freedom from shame and guilt and defilement and judgment and self-centeredness. And also freedom to be the persons that God made and meant us to be. One of the greatest confusions we have today is the confusion of identity. 
Many people in our Western culture are simply unsure of who they are. As Christians, however, we know that the created identity of all humanity is in God. We're all created in his image and likeness. And that our, and that our ultimate identity is in Christ Jesus. To look for it anywhere else, or to try to create our own identity, only ever leads to despair and confusion. And lastly, Peter makes it clear that the Gospel also carries conditions. What the Gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Christ. And inwardly, that takes the form of repentance and faith. Outwardly, it means baptism. For baptism in the name of Christ and subsequent confirmation as adults is a public repudiation of a former way of life where I was king and the public testimony of a future life where Christ is king. And just as in baptism and confirmation we declare our faith in Christ our king, no less are we declaring our transference and our belonging into Christ's new covenant community. So there's the fourfold message of the gospel. It entails two events, Christ's resurrection, uh, Christ's death and his resurrection. It's attested to by two witnesses, the prophets and the apostles, the Old and the New Testament. And it makes two promises, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit and two conditions, repentance and faith. We're not at liberty to reduce the gospel to just one thing. It's not just about having lots of faith or simply asking Jesus into your heart. We can't proclaim the cross without the resurrection. Christ died for our sins and he calls us to die with him. And he rose bodily from the dead that we might rise to a new life in him. We can't drive a wedge between the Old and the New Testament. The Gospel is God's message of grace from Genesis to Revelation. We can't present a Gospel as if it's only about forgiveness and escaping the wrath of God. God's gift of salvation also includes transformation from one glory into another. We cannot suppose faith without repentance. For trusting God must always mean moving away from our sin and towards him in love. And we cannot assume salvation without belonging. For as many as the Lord is saving, he adds to the church. The apostles told the good news of Jesus as an historical event, attested by many witnesses. They said that Christ's death and resurrection had theological significance. That by dying, Christ atoned for our sins, and that in rising, he's declared to be the Son of God in power, exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the apostles were also adamant that the gospel was a contemporary message, a message that confronts men and women with the necessity of decision. If such was their testimony, then we too have a responsibility to tell the same story. And though it's very likely that you've heard that story many times before, it's also very possible that your response has been far from radical. 
You may, for example, have supposed that being a Christian is simply a lifestyle choice, a set of beliefs that you've grown up with. But perhaps you've never known it to be a life-changing experience. Perhaps there's never been a conscious moment of decision, a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the beginning of a new life where all things have become new and you're recreated in Christ Jesus. It's hard to describe a change like that as anything less than radical. If that's not your experience, if you can find no evidence of God's transforming Holy Spirit in your life, if you have no sure knowledge that all your sins are forgiven and nailed to the cross, if you have no overwhelming sense of belonging to God and his new covenant community, then I want you to know that God calls you to all of these things and he offers them freely to all who call upon his name. If you've never consciously done that before, then do that with me now. If you have done that before, you have received the gift of God's Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, then pray with me anyhow to confirm what God has promised and to encourage others to grasp with two hands the gift of God's salvation. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we come before you now as guilty sinners, unworthy of your love. For our sins have just as surely crucified Christ Jesus the Lord as those of any rebellious mob. Please forgive us all our sins, make us your sons and daughters, and grant unto us the gift of your Holy Spirit, so that we might know the assurance of your grace, the joy of your salvation, and your seal upon us until the day of our redemption. We purpose now, our Father, to live under the Lordship of Christ Jesus, our Saviour, welcoming him to his rightful place as King over our lives. Help us to live our lives, encouraging one another in faith and hope and love, and together bearing witness to your saving grace and the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.